Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Zimmerman, Senior Director, Client Content and Strategy at Becker's Healthcare. Thank you for tuning into the Becker's Healthcare podcast series. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by two industry leaders to discuss accelerating pediatric drug development, regulatory, and commercial perspectives. So before we get started, I'm pleased to introduce today's speakers. We have Patrick Smith, PharmD, President, Integrated Drug Development with Sertara, Lin Yao, MD, Director, Division of Pediatric and Maternal Health, USFDA. So to begin here, I'm going to ask each of them to speak a little bit about their career journeys. Patrick, you want to get the ball rolling there? Sure, happy to, and thanks for having me. As you had mentioned, I'm a PharmD, so a clinical pharmacist by training. Uh, I spent the first portion of my career in academia, so I was faculty at the University of Buffalo, where I learned really to have a passion and, and a love for clinical research, for modeling and simulation, and, and spent about a decade there and, and then moved into the pharmaceutical industry. So I had various roles within the industry in translational medicine and clinical pharmacology, then made a decision to do something entrepreneurial, went into consulting, and have been consulting, uh, started a company that was acquired by Sertar in 2016, and have been consulting to help various companies move drugs into patients and through the approval process more rapidly. And so I've been doing that for a number of years now. Well, thank you for being here, Patrick. Lynn, how about you? Sure. Thanks, Brian. I am a pediatric nephrologist, which is a kidney specialist by training. So I have been involved in the care of children my whole professional career. Initially in academic medicine, um, actually, I was in the U.S. Army. And the reason I think that that's interesting is that I have had always had sort of this interest in public service and now at the FDA with, you know, service related to getting safe and effective drugs available for use in all pediatric populations. So my journey here has been one really of sort of in the clinical and at the bedside first, not really realizing that so many of the drugs that we were using every day in children weren't actually approved for use in children, to now in a position where I have, I hope, an ability to affect that situation. Thank you, Lynn, and thank you both for, for sharing that so our listeners can really appreciate your perspectives as we move through this conversation. And the first question that I'm going to put to you is then I'm hoping you can give listeners sort of a, a quick overview of the pediatric drug development landscape, thinking here about what are the major challenges, what potential solutions are emerging, et cetera. And, and Lynn, I'm going to tap on you to, to start us off here. I'm happy to. So, you know, the story of developing drugs that are really approved to treat children in this country span sort of the length of my career, I would say, in medicine. Back in the early 90s, most of the drugs, in fact, over 80% of the drugs that were being used every day in children were not FDA approved. And that changed pretty substantially in the late 90s, early 2000s with the passage of two really important landmark bipartisan pieces of legislation, the Best Pharmaceuticals for Children Act and the Pediatric Research Equity Act. And what that did was provide uh, drug developers incentives and requirements to conduct pediatric studies where pediatric studies were needed to get more information to support pediatric-specific labeling in drug products. Now, if you take that, you know, late 90s to now almost 25 years later, that course of 25 years has seen an explosion, really, of 
important information to support the use of safe and effective use of drugs in children. In fact, we've gone from, you know, basically having, like I said, over 80% of drugs not approved to now we're closing in, and I fully expect by the end of this calendar year of 2022 that we will have achieved our 1,000th labeling change with pediatric-specific information. And so I think you can just, that one statistic, I think, demonstrates the success of, you know, the program over the last 20-odd years. But as you also pointed out in your question, there are challenges that remain. And some of those important challenges are for drugs to treat pediatric-specific indications. For example, the diseases of the newborn and neonate, pediatric cancers, pediatric rare diseases, where we don't necessarily have the luxury of having data available from adult drug development first. So I think that we've got to think creatively and we've got to use all of the tools in our toolkit and we've got to engage all of the stakeholders if we're going to get those types of drugs approved. And I think that's really where I'm most interested and excited about, I think, in the next few years to come. Thank you so much, Lynn, for, for giving us sort of the lay of the land there. And then I'm going to jump into the next question. And Patrick, I'm going to tap on you to get us started here. Is, you know, from a regulatory perspective, then, what are, what are some of the best practices in, in pediatric drug development? Can you speak to some of those? Sure. Well, I think Lynn very well mentioned some of the challenges. And I think that we've learned a lot in terms of how to navigate the regulatory environment and how really to from the sponsor side to work hand in hand with regulators in advancing pediatric drug development. And so there, there have been a number of initiatives and techniques which have been created to try and solve some of these problems like the limited data, being able to utilize other forms of evidence like real world evidence and enabling one to use smaller studies and get greater information out of those studies. And then, of course, one of the things that we do a lot of at Sertara, which is the application of really novel biostatistical and modeling and simulation approaches to try and get better information out of the data. And we've gotten to the point of being able to use those kinds of analyses to create more information to do clinical trial simulations, all to support the evidence in favor of regulatory decision-making both for approval as well as things like dosing. Yeah, if I could, Brian, add on to what Patrick said there. Indeed, I think that we're at an age now, it's a, it's a nice confluence of large quantities of data and the ability to actually evaluate, interrogate, synthesize, and integrate those large quantities of data. And one of the guiding principles related to how we study drugs in children and how we indeed study children in, in the context of scientific investigations relies on the foundation that we should not be studying children unless we expect that there will be a prospect of direct benefit to children and indeed that the data that we're collecting in these clinical trials in children are actually going to lead uh, to some what we hope interpretable finding. So it's really important that we not waste our precious precious, most precious resource, which are pediatric patients, in studies that are really unnecessary, if we have the ability to obtain the data in novel or innovative ways. And I think very much to Patrick's point here, that if we have data streams available, we ought to be looking at those data streams to identify which ones we think 
are relevant, uh, usable, and in fact, fit for purpose. That is that use of those data will help us understand the disease and the treatment better. Now, that doesn't mean that in all cases, and I want to highlight this point, that doesn't mean that in all cases that all we have to do is review some real-world data and then we can approve a drug for children, done. A lot of it has to do with what do we know about the drug, what remains unknown about the drug, and what do we know and not know about the populations, the diseases that are being studied or the diseases that affect these children. So it's certainly not a one-size-fits-all, and it certainly is a very exciting time. And the other point I want to make about these innovative approaches, as, again, Patrick alluded to, is that it does really require that regulatory authorities across the globe work together. So it can't just be that, you know, uh, Sertara comes to FDA and says, okay, this is uh, a plan and we just want to do it, and is that okay? And FDA can't necessarily unilaterally say, yeah, it's fine, if the product really needs to be studied globally. And so I, I do want to point out that we, as U.S. regulators, try very hard to work not just with the drug development stakeholders and the academicians, but with regulators around the globe for the sake of getting these therapies developed for children. A really important call out there, Lynn. Thank you for that. And I do want to dig in now a little bit on some of these novel statistical models and, and, and how those are, those are coming into play. Um, so, so, Patrick, maybe you can, you can start us out here and um, talk more about model-informed drug development. You know, how has this approach evolved over time? Um, why, perhaps, is it particularly useful for pediatric drug development? Fantastic. Thanks for the question. So we have been able to, and by we, I mean the scientific community, to utilize building of mathematical models in many of the same ways that this is used in other industries, like engineering, for example, right? If you're if you're designing a new airplane, no one actually builds the airplane, you know, as the first prototype and sees if it can fly. You actually design it and test it and improve on it for thousands and thousands of simulated flight hours, right, in a computer. And biology is much more complex because you have much, much more heterogeneity and variability than in some of the other scientific disciplines. But we've gotten to the point of being able to do a lot of the same types of things to be able to represent and build these mathematical models in order to understand how patients and drugs will work in individuals better than, than we would have before. And so it actually allows us to build these models and then ask questions that we might not be able to ask in a clinical trial. So, for example, what would we expect if we know about this drug and have a model in adults? We know how we can adjust that model and understand how the drug, the pharmacokinetics of that drug will change in kids. We've gotten to the point where we understand the difference in drug metabolism and, and how the ontogeny of drug metabolizing enzymes that metabolize drugs evolve with age. We know differences in body composition by age. And so we can use all of that information to adapt these models to make predictions about how the drug will behave in children. And that, that enables us to do much more of the, you know, that design and testing in silico than we ever could before. And so that becomes a very powerful and useful tool 
when we're trying to, say, go from an, an adult and figure out, well, what dose should we give, you know, a six-month-old baby hospitalized with RSV infection, for example. Patrick, then follow-up for you. Can you speak to how these models then you, you think they will continue to evolve and maybe what will this evolution mean for the future of pediatric drug development? Yes, yeah, so the, the models continue to get better, and uh, one of the ways that we're doing this is through making them more and more mechanistic, so understanding a lot more details about what is going on at the tissue level, and, and therefore, when, when one has an ability to do that, you can account for differences amongst patient populations and differences that will be expected to happen as you try to look at safety and efficacy in, in various populations with a, with a drug of interest. So I don't know that we'll ever get to the point of not requiring clinical trials, right? I think that, that will always be there for, for sure, but it enables us to do them more efficiently. If we can build a model from a limited amount of data, we can then ask questions about, well, what if the trial had tested this dose, or what if we had done this population in, in a, a particular trial and, and ask those kinds of, of what-if questions that expands our understanding and our knowledge. So these will continue to get more mechanistic, and, and the predictions ultimately will continue to improve. I really appreciate that, Patrick. Um, it's going to be exciting to see how all this evolves over time. You know, we, we, the time has flown by here, Lynn and Patrick, just talking to you. But I want to just ask one final question, which is, is there anything we didn't cover, anything you didn't get a chance to say that you think is really important for our listeners to hear? Lynn, I'll, I'll tap on you first here. Sure. I think the one thing I'd really like to emphasize here is that it really does take a village to get these drugs developed for use in our smallest, uh, most vulnerable populations are our children. And if we really want to do it and we want to do it the right way, we generally get one chance to do it right. And to Patrick's point, you know, the ways that we can get it right are to help optimize the use of data that are existing to help us understand what we need, what we don't know, and what we need to get. So my wish for everybody here who's listening is to understand that for the sake of the children, we need to have the best and highest quality data, we need to have the best and brightest minds, and we need to all collaborate together in a place uh, where we can share openly the data that we have uh, so that we get this done for the children, not just of the United States, but of the world. Thank you so much, Lynn. Patrick? I would just emphasize that point, and I think it's very, very clear from these statements that Lynn has made of how this really is a partnership, and, and a lot of the advances in pediatric drug development have come because of the leadership that regulatory agencies like FDA have taken, and they've really driven this field forward and, and driven adoption of a lot of these newer ways of approaching pediatric drug development. And, and a, lot of the, a lot of the innovations that have come that are now more commonplace, even in adult drug development, have actually derived from solving some of these challenges in, in the pediatric space and then have been applied more, more broadly. I would like to thank Lynn and the regulatory colleagues 
for really taking leadership here and, and driving this forward because it is so critical and so important to having an impact on children uh, g- going forward. Appreciate that, Patrick. And again, thank you both so much for for taking the time today to discuss this really important and fascinating topic. I also want to thank our podcast sponsor, Sertara. You can tune to more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare by visiting our podcast page at beckershospitalreview.com slash podcasts.